When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less tax. This is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So big question today is inflation, recession, the economy. What's going to happen? What's going to happen today? What's going to happen the next month? the next 12 months, the next several years. And today we're going to discover exactly what could happen now so that we can be prepared and we can actually take some action that we can actually do something about it. And today I have a very special guest, my good friend, Richard Duncan, an economist. Um, we've known each other for many, many years, uh, been on stage together, traveled uh, all over the world together. And uh, Richard, it is just absolutely fantastic to have you on our show. Tom, thank you. It's so nice to see you again. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And so, uh, Richard, if you would, just just if uh, for those who don't know who you are, would you give just a little bit about your background and, and what you do? Okay. So very quickly, uh, I have lived, I, I'm an American, but I have spent most of my career working in Asia. I moved to Hong Kong in 1986 worked as a securities analyst for stockbroking companies and then fund management companies. At one point, I was the global head of investment strategy for ABN AMRO Asset Management based in London. And I worked for the World Bank for a couple of years in Washington. And I've written four books along the way. The most recent one, the first one was The Dollar Crisis 20 years ago. The new one's called The Money Revolution, How to Finance the Next American Century. And for the last uh, nine years, I've been making a video newsletter called Macro Watch uh, that I sell on a subscription basis. So that's my business now. Mm, awesome. So, all right. So uh, recently we've had some continuing inf bad inflation news. Uh, the Fed keeps raising interest rates, doesn't seem to be putting much of a dent in it. So where do you see this going from an inflation? Let's start with inflation and the interest rates. Can can the Fed take tackle this and can they tackle it without a recession? I mean, that's the big question on everybody's mind. I think they can tackle it, but it will cause a recession. The GDP was slightly negative in the first half of the year already, two quarters in a row, and things are gonna get much worse. After the most recent uh, CPI numbers last night, which were really quite disappointing, it's almost certain that the Fed will increase another 75 basis points at its next meeting on September 21st. And this is going to keep going from there. Uh, 75 basis points then, that will take the federal funds rate up to about 3.1%. After that, the next meeting will probably be 50 basis points. And then after that, if we assume 25 basis points at every meeting until the middle of next year, which seems pretty reasonable, uh, that would put the federal funds rate at 4.8%. So that's, that's pretty high. 
So, so um, that's the federal funds rate. What does that What does that mean in real terms? What does that mean to, for example, the um, the the person who's buying a home or the consumer with their uh, credit card rates? So the federal funds rate is the interest rate, very short term overnight interest rates that the Fed controls. That's their policy rate. And the other market determined rates like the 10 year government bond yield or the say 30, 30 year fixed mortgage rate, they, they move um, not exactly in line with that, but they are influenced by that. And they're unlikely, for example, they're, it's not very likely that they're going to trade below the 10 year government bond, uh, below the federal funds rate. So as the federal funds rate moves up, uh, from about 2.3% now to it's going to could double by the middle of next year. And that's going to push up um, mortgage rates. For example, the, the, t the 30 year fixed mortgage rate now has hit 6.3% uh, last night after the bad CPI numbers. That's the highest in a very long time. And that's going to cause home prices to start falling, I believe, before long um, and joining in with the stock prices. Now, stocks have already had a terrible year. Home prices are still up, but they're probably going to start going down before much longer. Yeah, and so, the U.S. is very likely to go into recession. So, so let's, let's look at that. Why, why is that? What, why are the interest rates so important to a thriving economy? Okay, well, so... When interest rates are uh, low, uh, then it's very easy for people to borrow money and to either uh, invest in their businesses or to buy a home or their credit card bills are lower. And so it generally makes the economy stronger because there's more investment and more consumption. And also there's a lot more speculation. When interest rates are very low, it's cheaper for people to borrow and speculate. And so what we've seen, say, a year ago, we had a stock market frenzy because interest rates were super low and the Fed was creating money at the rate of $120 billion a month and pumping it into the economy. So we had a super uh, revved up stock market that was wildly speculative. And now that's some of the froth has come out of that, but it's still very expensive relative to past norms. I mean, for example, one measure that I think is important to watch is something I call the wealth to income ratio. And what that is, is it's household sector net worth. In other words, all the wealth of the Americans mm -hmm. divided by income, disposable personal income. So it's wealth to income ratio. And this data goes back to 1950. And the average since 1950 has been 550%. But at the end of the second quarter, it was uh, what uh, six hundred. Sorry, it was seven hundred and eighty. So the average is five hundred and fifty. But at the end of the second quarter, and this was after the big second quarter sell-off, it was seven hundred and eighty. Seven hundred and eighty is, of course, it was higher at the end of last year. But seven hundred and eighty is is sixteen percent above its previous all-time peak, which was during the property bubble. So this just shows you how high asset prices are relative to their historic norm. That's stock prices and property prices. And so going back to your interest rate question, 
when interest rates were very, very low, then that's the reason the asset price is inflated because people could borrow and speculate. But as interest rates go up, the wealth is going to evaporate again and it's going to go down and, and we'll see this wealth income. The higher interest rates go, the more wealth is going to be destroyed. So and it looks like they're going considerably higher for the next uh, three months at, at the very least. So if, if interest rates continue to rise as you, as you expect, and that has a slowdown effect on the economy, how fast do you see the economy slowing down? Um, you know, I mean, I mean, here, here's the thing, you know, people go, you, you get on an airplane, it's, the airports are packed. You go, go to a restaurant, the restaurants are packed. So what is it? Where's the slowdown? Is, I think one of the questions that people are asking is, where is the slowdown? Because you're not seeing it in everyday life. Right. This is such an interesting time, Tom, for, as an economist, uh, to watch what's been happening. Because the stimulus that the government pumped into the economy during uh, between March 2020 and March 2021, the government pumped in something like $5 trillion of stimulus. And it was very direct. These went stimulus checks right into individuals' bank accounts and into businesses' bank accounts as well. And so once they got the stimulus checks, they deposited them in their banks. So bank deposits have gone up by about $5 trillion. I think that's like 44%. Wow. Um, but there's this huge new chunk of money that just wasn't ever there before. And people are still spending it. Of course, they've spent a lot of it. They've speculated a lot of it. It's moved around. Different people have it now than when they checked for first cent, perhaps. But so that's a wild card. We don't know. That's why the restaurants are full and why the airlines are full. And then the other thing that we have happening simultaneously is globalization is experiencing a big a partial reversal. We have supply chain disruptions, first because of COVID, which have not been entirely worked out yet. They're getting worked out, but China is still shutting down some of its major cities because of their zero COVID policy. And then, and then in February, Russia invaded Ukraine, causing oil prices and wheat prices and food prices to shoot up. And we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine next. And for that matter, we, I'd like to be optimistic, but we don't know what's going to happen with COVID either. So this globalization was extremely deflationary. As long as the United States could buy more and more goods from countries with extremely low cost labor, that kept pushing down inflation. But now that's gone into partial reversal. At the same time, the Americans have all the stimulus money. So there's more demand, supply is disrupted, and that's why we're seeing high rates of inflation. And now it's spilling over into not just energy and food, but it's actually spreading through the economy. Uh, uh, rents are going up. They say rents account for about one third of the inflation basket. And that's probably going to continue for a while. So the Fed can't do anything. It can't pump more oil and it can't plant more wheat. So the only thing it can do to bring the inflation rate down, it can't do anything on the supply side. It can't increase the supply. It can only destroy demand Got to it. bring demand and supply back into balance so that prices will come down to their 2% inflation target. So to do that, they have to increase the interest rates and they're now reversing quantitative easing. They're going instead of creating money, they're now destroying $95 billion every month 
that they're pulling out of the out of the financial markets. That's a lot of money. That's over the next year, that will be $1.1 trillion less money than exists today. And that's going to, with less, that will tend to push up interest rates as well and also take money out of the financial markets and put downward pressure on stocks and home prices as well. So the Fed is going to have to keep this going until the, the unemployment rate is near a 50-year low. It was 3.5%. Uh, it ticked up a little bit last month to 3.7%. That's extremely low. Right. And they're going to have to throw a lot of people out of work before the restaurants are no longer full. So they're going to have to keep increasing rates. They're going to have to throw people out of work and destroy demand by increasing unemployment and also by destroying wealth. If the stock market goes down and the property prices go down, there'll be less money, so there'll be less demand. That's what the Fed's out to do. Of course, they don't like to say so, but they're going to have to destroy wealth and throw people out of work and create a recession to bring the inflation back down. So, so we keep hearing this, uh, this idea from Janet Yellen and others about a soft landing. Uh, what's, uh, give us a likelihood of a soft landing. Well, we can always hope for the best, you know, um, but it, it looks very difficult to have a soft landing. I don't know what you would define as a soft landing, but I think we're going to have a pretty hard landing because our economy has grown so dependent on credit growth. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, credit growth is the main driver for economic growth. And secondly, the, the economy is quite dependent on asset prices going up as well. Stocks going up and home prices going up and people can take some of that money out and spend it too. And so with the interest rates moving significantly higher than they have been for a long time, then that is going to make it very, this, we have the entire country, the debt of all the sectors of the economy, not just US government, not just the government, but households and corporations and non-corporate businesses and the financial sector, all the debt of the country is $91 trillion now. Now, it first went through $1 trillion in 1964, when I was three years old. It's gone up 91 times in my lifetime. And that explosion of credit that really kicked in after dollars stopped being backed by gold, that explosion of credit has driven our economy for decades. And there's a whole lot of debt. And if interest rates go up a lot, it's going to be increasingly difficult for everyone to service the interest on their debt. Well, let me clear, clarify that. If you not, it's not going to be increasingly difficult for everyone to service their debt. It's not going to be difficult for the government to do it because the government can create money and it's not going to default. And the government also owes Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They own Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So Fannie's debt and the government debt makes up 41% of all the debt in the country. There's not going to be any problem servicing that debt. But the other 60% of the debt, individuals, households, businesses, even the banks, they're going to have increasing problems. So when you, when you, see a, when you say a hard landing, not a soft landing, are we talking about 2008, 9, 10 hard landing? Are we talking something bigger than that? Um, 2008 was a very hard landing. <laughs> that was, that was, it was. The financial, financial sector blew up 
and came very close to collapsing. And had the government not intervened so aggressively, we would have gone through another Great Depression. And uh, the same is true for 2020. Had the government not sent, sent out a lot of stimulus checks, with some, the unemployment rate was 14.8% and rising. Those people would have defaulted on their mortgages, their car loans, their credit card loans, and all the banks would have failed. So again, we would have had a Great Depression in 2020 had it not been for the government stimulus. Now it can be argued, and maybe it is true, that they might have overdone it somewhat on, on too much stimulus. But of course, at the time, they didn't know how long COVID was going to last. And sure. frankly, frankly, I think too little is better than not enough, when not enough would mean a Great Depression. So I don't think it's going to be 2008. It shouldn't be like that. Uh, because the banks are unlikely to have a complete systemic meltdown as they did then. And surely we're not going to experience another COVID lockdown crisis, I hope, like 2020. But so it should be more like a, you know, but still recessions are recessions. Um, and so we're, what we're going to see is, even though the most recent inflation data was really disappointing, it showed that inflation is sticky and we don't know how long it's going to remain sticky. We don't know what's going to happen with the Ukraine. We don't know what's going to happen for sure with COVID, but probably the inflation rate is going to start moving down over the months ahead. If for no other reason, in part, just because of the base effect, you know, at one, for example, at one point used car prices were up 33% year on year, and that was causing a lot of inflation. Well, even if they just stay at the same price, then after a year, there would be 0% inflation in used car prices, right? And oil, oil went up to $120 a barrel, and now it's 90, let's say. So there's been some, just the base on, year-on-year -year base effect will mean that inflation shouldn't stay anywhere near 8%. It will come down. But the Fed wants the inflation rate to be 2%. Um, and there's a long way to go between here and there. So, but gradually it will come down. And when it comes down, as it comes down, then the investors will be encouraged that the Fed won't keep in hiking interest rates. So we, we will get periodic bouts of enthusiasm as we saw in, uh, in August with the stock market recovering. But as the economy gets worse and unemployment goes up, it will probably be a situation where bad news for the economy is could be good news for the stock market. And eventually, if the stock market, if enough people lose their jobs and we have a recession, then the Fed will, will stop increasing interest rates. And if things, when things become bad enough, they'll start cutting interest rates. And so at that point, we'll just have to see what the policy response is at that time, where we are then, uh, and what, what, what's, the, what's the government going to do on the spending side, and what's the Fed going to do on the interest rate side and on the quantitative tightening side. So here's the big question, Richard. So <laughs> what do people do for the next several months? Um, how, do, how do they plan for this? What, are, are, is, it, is it time to pull money, their money all out of the stock market? Should they have gone? I mean, you know, everybody wishes they'd gone cash the first of the year, right? They would have been much better off. Or do they look for alternative investments? What kind of investments? Because if you see 
If you see asset prices coming down, that means you may see real estate asset prices coming down. You see all types of asset prices come down. We've even seen gold um, as an asset price come down. So what do people do between now and whenever this thing shakes out? It, well, sadly, Tom, um, there's no, uh, no law of, of investing that guarantees people can, can make, people can make a profit and, uh, and uh, have appreciating wealth. Since 2009, uh, 2007, just before the big crisis of 2008, household sector wealth has doubled since 2007, the pre-bubble the pre peak. There's twice as much wealth in America now as there was in 2007, despite two severe crises. Now, you know, people have had a really good run for a long time. A lot of that wealth is likely, a significant amount of that wealth is going to be destroyed. Six uh, total wealth hit $150 trillion at the end of last year. Since then, $6 trillion has evaporated. Significantly more, I suspect, is going to evaporate before we get to the end of this downturn in, in wealth. So, you know, different people have very different financial positions, right? There are people with billions of dollars, and there are people who only have a couple of thousand dollars to invest. But if you're looking at a defensive strategy, since you're, I mean, we're talking about a recession, so let's just play this out. You're, you're looking at taking a defensive position. What would constitute a defensive position in this market? So, you know, as people say, it's good to have a broadly diversified portfolio because look, through, look what we've been through uh, over the last 15 years. The economy has nearly collapsed twice, and yet stock prices shot wildly higher. So you would think, you know, stocks would have been the worst place to be when in two, after 2008 when the banking system was on the verge of imploding. But if you'd not been in stocks, then you would have, uh, you know, missed a whole lot of upside. And so I do believe that it makes sense to have a broadly diversified portfolio. And if you're looking at this for the long term, um, you know, you probably, it's, it's really dangerous to pull your money out and put your money back in. But if you need, you know, I wouldn't be, I can't tell every person what to do. I don't know their individual circumstances. If you're a young person, I think it makes a lot of sense to accumulate a residential investment rental property as a long-term wealth strategy buy rental properties, land with houses, not condos. And, you know, you can accumulate a great portfolio over the next 40 years and have a very happy retirement. So, so hard assets. Hard assets. Um, but, you know, be prepared. If you're going to stay invested, be prepared for, I think stock prices will keep moving lower for some time. And I think home prices will start to fall. For sure. Uh, they're still going up year on year. And I mean, maybe month on month, they're going down now. The number of home units are dropping. So um, uh, cash, you're going to lose money on cash because of uh, right. the inflation. 
Gold, you know, if gold hasn't gone up by now with the inflation rate hitting 9%, if not now, when? Right. Either interest rates keep going up and that crushes gold or inflation comes down and that crushes gold. So it's hard to see what's going to make gold move any higher. If it hasn't done its thing now, you know, when's it going to do it? Am I going to, I have some gold. Am I going to sell it? No, I'm never going to sell my gold, but uh, I wouldn't bet the farm that it's going to go higher. So. Got it. So, you know, so maybe, maybe right now the whole idea of uh, cash flow, like uh, our friend Robert Kiyosaki talks about all the time, it's not such a bad idea. Then you're not so dependent on asset prices. Right. And for that matter, you know, build your own business, invest your time in building a good business that's recession proof, that's going to keep generating cash flow for you, regardless of what happens with your investment portfolio. Uh, you shouldn't, investing is not a, a very uh, sure strategy for a long time security. Uh, whereas a good business of your, that you control yourself is. I like it. I like it. So, all right. So final question for you, Richard. So you're, um, you're the chairman of the federal reserve, or you have some clout um, and you could actually wave a magic wand. You could do something and actually dictate what happened. What, sh what should be done? Well, this may not be the, answer you're looking for, but you know, what, what America needs to do is invest in new industries and new technologies on a very aggressive scale so that we can uh, get a surge in productivity and stay at the forefront of as the global technological superpower. We are uh, on the verge of being overtaken by China, technologically, economically, and therefore militarily. And if they get the lead on us, then we, we may never catch up. If they develop artificial intelligence before we do, then it's game over. They win, they control the world. We're, you know, we're Chinese slaves, essentially, along with the rest of the world. So one really great thing happened recently. Uh, the, against all odds, the House and the Senate both passed something called the Chips and Science Act. Right to invest $280 billion in new industries and new technologies, including 52 billion allocated directly for semiconductors, including in Arizona mm -hmm. and Ohio, new, new, new semiconductor manufacturing chip factories in the United States where we can control the supply. And uh, then the rest going to things like artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, biotech, nanotech, robotics, neurosciences, renewable energies. So that's, that's a big positive step forward for our country. It's not enough. So what, if I were Fed chairman, I would be encouraging Congress as much as possible to do more of that. And you know, $280 billion sounds like a lot of money. And it is, of course. But the Fed was creating $120 billion every month during most of last year. So in just a little more than two months, they could finance that whole thing. So I would like to use the Fed's printing press to finance new investment in new industries, new technologies, because China's investing so much more at such a rapid rate compared to us that uh, you know we're on the brink of making a fatal mistake 
in terms of allowing them to have the upper hand. And, that makes sense. There's no, there's no reason for us to do that because we could easily afford to invest more. Easily. US, easy. government, US government debt is um, about 120% of GDP, 130% of GDP. Japanese government debt is twice that level. Their level of Japanese government debt was where our level of debt is now 20 years ago. So there's no constraint on how much the government can borrow, especially if the Fed is willing to lend money, create money and finance that. So that's, that's what I would like to, that was my key project. That's what I write about in the book, in my new book, The Money Revolution how to finance the next American century. That's what I've been focused on for the last several years as I've been writing this book. But to, maybe to answer your question more along the lines of what you would like, what would I do as Fed chairman? Well, the Fed is in a difficult position. They, they have to bring the inflation rate back down. And so they're, what they're praying for is that as they increase interest rates, from still what is a very low level, uh, right. as of today, it's still just around the federal funds rate, it's just about 2.3%. That's really, really, really low by historic standards, especially when you have an in inflation rate of 8%. So what the Fed is hoping to do as it gradually increases interest rates over the next six months, they're praying that the supply chain bottlenecks will get worked out. And so that the supply side opens up. Got it. And it if there's more supply, then that helps bring supply and demand back into balance. And that way they don't have to destroy so much de demand. So that, that's what they're waiting for and praying for. And if they're lucky, they'll see, they'll see that, but it's uncertain. Meanwhile, they're going to have to keep in increasing interest rates. And that's the problem, you know, because people have been so used to this, the Fed coming to their rescue. Mm -hmm. Anytime the stock market starts to, to fall, they call it the Fed put. The Fed does something to ensure that the stock prices rebound again. But we can't count on the Fed coming to the rescue for the next three to six months at least because the Fed needs to destroy wealth to bring the demand down, to bring the inflation down. That is their job is to control inflation. And in part due to circumstances, at least in large part, circumstances beyond their control, Inflation has totally got to run away from them. And we haven't seen this kind of inflation, you know. 40 years. For a long, yeah, 40 years. I mean, that's beyond my experience in the market, which goes pretty far back. But so I think everyone's been caught off guard, including the Fed. And, you know, we're still open for a lot of surprises going forward. We don't know what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine, for instance. It could spread other countries and become worse and heaven forbid COVID could you know make a big resurgence and become much worse so things are really super un, uh, uncertain as to what the future holds and um, the Fed is what we're going to see in the near term is significantly higher interest rates they're going to do. They're going to do what it sounds like you feel like they need to do. So, um, with that, Richard, how do people get more information from you? How do they get, um, you know, involved with your uh, uh, your report? How how would they get uh, more of the information you're providing here? Because this is terrific. Okay, thanks, Tom. So, first of all, if they'd like to buy my new book, it's called The Money Revolution. Uh, they can 
definitely find it on Amazon and hopefully in good bookstores wherever they still exist. And also, I mentioned earlier that my business is I produce a video newsletter called Macro Watch. In Macro Watch, I discuss, I, up, I produce a new video every couple of weeks discussing some development in the global economy and how that's likely to impact asset prices and commodities, currencies, and the economy in general, based on you know, how the economy really works now. Now that gold is no longer money, credit growth drives economic growth, liquidity determines which way interest rates move. So those are the things I focus on now, how the economy really works in the 21st century, not the way it did in the 19th century when gold was money. And if they'd like to find MacroWatch, my website is richardduncaneconomics.com, richardduncaneconomics.com. And if they'd like to subscribe to MacroWatch, hit the subscribe button and they'll be prompted to put in a discount coupon code. I'd like to offer your listeners a 50% discount. Oh, nice. If they use the discount coupon code ability, they can subscribe to MacroWatch at a 50% discount. So I hope they'll check out that at richardduncaneconomics.com and at least sign up there for my free blog. That would be awesome. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for joining us from Thailand. Uh, thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge. I encourage everybody to go to richardduncaneconomics.com. I've been following Richard and listening to him for many, many years. Because remember, once we understand a little more of the macro, it's so much easier to handle the micro. And the micro, and when we can do that and we put that all together, that's when we end up making way more money and paying way less tax. We'll see everyone next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.